Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, don't say the movie bombed and stuff. Just say the movie bombed. This is The Nice Guys. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Blast Zone. Welcome to the Blast Zone. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like The Nice Guys, which we're talking about today. Yes. Very exciting. But before we get into that, Ian, how are you doing this week? I'm sweating to the oldies, as they say. I, in this case, am the oldie. The sweat is coming out of me because it's hot in LA. I'm out on the streets meeting phone company repairmen, and then I'm just jumping inside to do a podcast where it's nice and cool. So I'm glad to be here. How about you? Oh man, I've had a week. I'm podcasting injured for one thing. I have, oh, no. I don't know if you'd call it injured. I have poison ivy on my arm, which I oh, absolutely shit. hate. I hate poison ivy. I get it very easily if the wind blows too strongly. Uh-oh. And also we've been dealing with like monsoons here in the Northeast. I've had my power go out a bunch of times this week, Wild. trees falling down and it stopped raining finally long enough for us to record this podcast because I was a little nervous. I was going to lose power in the middle of it. Yeah. Thank goodness. But, yeah. It's been quite a week, but aside from that, I'm hanging in there. Man. Yeah. We're both just dealing with it. The weather is coming down at us opposite ends of the country, but we're both feeling the forces of climate catastrophe are closing in. Yep. This is just life now, I guess. Just like the forces of the Detroit auto industry are closing in on our heroes in this week's movie. Not just this week's movie. As you guys (laughs) know, we like to talk about something else we watched that we thought was interesting or good or noteworthy. And day one listeners will know my favorite director, Steven Soderbergh. He dropped a new movie on HBO Max called No Sudden Move. It's a period piece set in 1950s Detroit dealing with the auto industry, specifically with catalytic converters, which the nice guys has a heavy focus on. So I thought that would be a fun movie to talk about for a, for a hot minute. What did you think of this one? Soderbergh came through at the perfect time. He knew what we were up to. He said, I've got something to throw into the Detroit conspiracy mystery business. I loved it. I watched it right away when it dropped. And it's really cool, really great actors, a great performance from Don Cheadle and just about everybody else in there. Yeah. And just a fun, twisty crime gone wrong story. Yeah. I, I saw some criticism that it was hard to follow. I didn't find it particularly hard to follow. There's obviously a lot of double crosses and uh, a little bit of shiftiness to follow throughout. But if you really pay attention, I didn't have an issue keeping up with it. But even if you do, just the vibe of it is so cool and you can still have a good time with it. You can't go wrong with a Soderbergh heist movie and Don Cheadle. Benicio Del Toro, Ray Liotta, special cameo guest we're not going to spoil, but what a stacked cast. Kieran Culkin, maybe the MVP of the Culkin family at this point. That's right. So just highly recommend it if you guys haven't seen it. And I understand you wanted to talk about Old Stevie a little bit. Yeah. So I was inspired after that. I was like, wow, I forgot how much I also like Steven Soderbergh. I went back and watched Logan Lucky from 2017, not that long ago. An interesting entry in the Soderbergh heisty canon. He made his heist career off of Ocean's Eleven. And this is, as they call it in the movie, Ocean's 7-Eleven. It is Ocean's Eleven with good old boys. Yeah, not quite as elaborate, not quite as, no tuxedos in this one. It doesn't have the flash of the Ocean's Eleven crew. And not just that, but it has sort of just a cool laconic style, if I'm using that word correctly. Like it's kind of just low key. And even though there's a lot going on and high stakes on the line and a big a heist unfolding that you're not sure if it's going to work. It keeps this kind of low-key tone, which is just really fun and friendly. And it has a nice heart to it. There's a happy father-daughter story at the center of the whole thing. So I thought it was just a really warm, fun movie. Yeah, Daniel Craig kind of perfecting his Knives Out accent in that one, seeing if he can do a country fried accent. (laughs) I think Soderbergh brings out the best in Channing Tatum too. Probably my favorite Channing Tatum roles are Magic Mike and Logan Lucky, both Soderbergh movies. And I actually, I was a guest on a podcast a few months ago, Silver Screen Video. Video, great podcast if you guys want to check it out. And I talked about a few of my favorite Soderbergh movies. And Logan Lucky was one of the three I brought to the table that day. I'm very fond of it. It's just an easy breezy watch. That was my feeling too. It was really fun. I It was long overdue. I had not seen it before, but I knew that I'd wanted to for a while. So it was nice to catch up to it. Yeah. And all these movies, heist movies, kind of tie into today's movie a little bit. As we mentioned, there's the Detroit industry tie into the nice guys, yep. but also the nice guys, it's definitely a Shane Black movie, but it's got a little Soderbergh spirit in it. You could see it in the snappy kind of dialogue. Yeah. Soderbergh's pretty fond of period pieces, but it had that kind of vibe to it. And I'm 
super excited to talk about it. Yeah, me too. Really good movie this week. We've had our share of off movies, but we're on a hot streak where we're doing some that we love and those are always fun. What's your relationship with this movie? When did you first see it? Did you catch it in theaters? I did not catch it in theaters, but I caught it shortly after. I knew that I wanted to see it as soon as it became available on streaming and I watched it and I just really liked it. I'm like, oh, I don't know what this is. I don't know where it came from because I didn't really hear a ton about it. And it's awesome. Like I felt like I had discovered a gem. Yeah, I am same way. I, I was a Shane Black fan. I liked Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, but I wasn't an acolyte of his or anything like that. I wasn't a fanatic. And I remember seeing trailers for this movie and being intrigued, but then it kind of came and went without much of a splash. So I don't think I even registered for me that it was in theaters when I was kind of gearing up to go see something. And yeah. like you, I think I discovered it. It was on HBO streaming service shortly after leaving theaters and I checked it out and fell in love and I've probably watched it three or four times since then, not including for this podcast. Such a fun movie. It's a great background movie because anytime you happen to focus in on it, you're going to catch a joke or a really funny line or some snappy dialogue. The movie is wall to wall loaded. There's not a dull spot in it at any point. So it's just one of those great movies that you could turn on at any point and still enjoy it. I totally agree on that. I was noting that on multiple rewatches. I'm thinking about, okay, how much is this a comedy versus how much is this an action movie? And there's tons of action and it's all great. But there's no scene that doesn't have at least one really strong joke in it. And usually it's multiple good jokes. Yeah, even like the major action sequences, they always throw something comedic in there to keep you laughing and keep some levity going during what at times can be a pretty dark subject matter that they're dealing with. For sure. So do you want me to go through the story of this movie and its production and how it came to be in our lives? Yeah, let's hear how this thing happened. All right. In 2013, Shane Black was coming off a box office success unlike any he had ever experienced. His first and only superhero effort, Iron Man 3, had received positive reviews from critics and earned $1.2 billion in theaters. That's billion with a B, a killer B. With some newfound cachet, Black told producer Joel Silver he wanted to make The Nice Guys, a movie he'd originally written with Anthony Bagarosi in 2001 and was loosely based on a Brett Halliday novel called Blue Murder. The screenplay had gone through a few different iterations by that point, but the shooting script had been updated in 2009 to make it a period piece set in 1970s Los Angeles. Ah uh, yes, LA's brown period. Silver was initially wary about producing a period piece, but after he had found great success producing Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes movie, Silver agreed to make the nice guys. Well, he sounds like a good dude. Scripts were sent to Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling to play the two leads and both quickly agreed as they were eager to work with each other. Filmed in the fall of 2014 in Georgia and Los Angeles, the film would be released on May 20th, 2016 to overwhelmingly positive reviews, but relative disinterest from the movie-going audience. The Nice Guys grossed $11.3 million in its opening weekend, good for fourth place, and would go on to make $36.3 million in the U.S. and Canada and $62.8 million worldwide against a production budget of fifty million, making it a bona fide flop. They got bona fide because they made a really great movie, had all this awesome stuff going for it. And what happened? I don't know if we're going to be able to figure this one out. We'll have some theories, but I go down the list on this movie and there's so many good things to check off. I I had trouble finding the fatal flaws that might have doomed this movie. Yeah, it's almost, it makes me sad to dig in and try to find out why this movie didn't really find an audience because it's like, if this movie can't find an audience, like what hope is there? (laughs) I know. For (laughs) non-IP, adult R-rated, just a great movie. It's a great movie in every way. Yeah, I think sometimes we have to be willing to go, hey, it's just bad luck. It's just bad timing. Something didn't click. I think we have to be careful not to be sucked into the false idea of a perfect meritocracy in the movie business or anywhere else where it's, oh, we got to find some way to blame the movie or the filmmakers or the people in charge of marketing it. Because sometimes they just do everything pretty well or even really well. And then this happens. Yeah, I do have some thoughts about the marketing of this movie. But overall, I think we've seen it a few times now that, like you said, it can just be the luck of the draw. There was other stuff out that weekend. People wanted to see more. Whatever the reason, certainly nothing the filmmakers could have done to make this more enjoyable, in my opinion. It's a pretty great movie. It's so tight and it's so crafted. And it's like, this is Shane Black, who has had a long career, started young, writing screenplays and having big success from the get-go. But this is him. I feel like this is his masterwork. This is where everything he's been trying to do his whole career clicked. Yeah, it's kind of the culmination of all his gifts. Ability to balance humor and drama and mystery and his cool slick talk and dialogue and his 
his love of irreverent protagonists and anti-heroes. And it all kind of comes together in this movie in a perfect way. And uh, he hasn't made anything since it. So maybe he feels the same way and just <laughs> can't bring himself to be like, well, that didn't work. Oh, no, he has made he made Predators after this. Oh, uh, yeah. Which, yeah, to but, sort of re- revisit an old chapter in his career. Yeah, we, I mean, we've already talked about Shane Black a little bit because we covered Last Action Hero, which interesting tidbit about that movie. It was originally written to parody Shane Black movies. And then they went through so many rewrites with it. Uh, they eventually brought Shane Black on to punch up the script, which is just <laughs> hilarious to me. It eventually became a Shane Black movie. And so now, right. yeah, I think of it as a Shane Black movie, but it's not really. It's a movie that's making fun of him and that then he got paid to improve. Something tells me Shane Black would not be uh, opposed to making fun of himself, though. He seems obviously he's a funny guy if he can write this dialogue. So I bet he's got a little bit of a self-effacing sense of humor. Yeah, no, I'm sure he wasn't mad about making that movie. So do you want to tell us uh, the story of this movie? Let's go through the plot and kind of break it down that way. Yeah, this movie has a big, long, uh, twisty plot. So let's jump right into it. All right. A young lady named Amelia pays an enforcer for hire named Jackson Healy, played by Russell Crowe, to convince some men to stop looking for her. One of the men looking for her is a private eye named Holland March, played by Ryan Gosling, a sad, widowed alcoholic who gets by with a lot of help from his plucky teenage daughter, Holly, who's played by Anne Gowry Rice. Coming home after giving March a painful warning, Healy himself is attacked by some thugs who were also after Amelia. After this, Healy decides to come back to March and hire him to figure out what's really going on with the missing girl Amelia and with the recently killed porn star Misty Mountains. Yeah, quite a bit of exposition going on early in this movie. It's packed with plot. And yeah. Particularly the first few minutes, they really throw a lot at you. Yeah, but all in like super fun ways, right? So it's it starts as a mystery should with the initial part of the crime going down in real time as Missy's car careens off of a canyon and through a house and she dies tragically. But even that is like, it's sad and it's violent and it's awful, but it's also full of comic moments. So the movie just, it pulls you in from the start with fun stuff. Yeah. And it was nice. They gave the uh, the young boy in that scene a little moment where he covers up Misty Mountain because she's shirtless right. on and kind of splayed out. So right there, it kind of undercuts that this is going to be a straight comedy. You know, it's dealing with some serious stuff. And I think they tried to add some gravity to that moment with the boys reaction to it. Some gravity and some heart. Yeah, it'd be easy for a young boy in that scenario to like oogle. If you remember Bad Boys 2, they literally fondle a corpse in that movie. So this is just the flip side of that spectrum where the filmmaker has a little more respect, I think. Yeah, even though he does something pretty salacious by taking the Playboy centerfold model and having her die in a way that recreates her centerfold, including being nude and splayed out. And then the little boy has some respect. The little boy, star of the Insidious movie series. Did you know that? I did not know that. I've seen, I saw at least the first of those movies. Yeah, Uh, I didn't see any of them. But like once you are told that, and you see his face in the scene. He's the boy from the cover of that uh, DVD box. Right. And then we get our first impression of Jackson Healy, the Russell Crowe character, playing a very familiar Russell Crowe character. I, I like to imagine that this is Bud White from L.A. Confidential, but like... 20 years down the road and he's Aww. just a little older and a little, a little out of shape, but still tough. You're familiar with LA Confidential, right? It's been a while since I went back and did a rewatch, but yeah, I love that movie. Funnier in this movie, obviously. And the timelines. I wonder if the timelines do line up. Yeah, that was the 50s. This is the oh. 70s. Maybe that's new headcanon. I'm yeah. going to go with it. That, that This is grown up <laughs> Bud White. He changed his name to get away from after he got shot at the end of LA Confidential. Yeah, he needed <laughs> to sort of start over. Go live up in the back of the comedy store. But then that gets more complicated when another actress joins the movie later. So maybe this doesn't make sense. Yeah, but he's really fun. He comes in, he does this classic sort of hired muscle stuff, but showing that he's a good guy, right? Because he's not muscling somebody to collect the protection money. He's muscling a guy who deserves it, who's messing around with an underage girl and his dad hires him. And so we see from the start that this is an enforcer with heart. Yeah, he's essentially a vigilante for hire. He'll take on a job if if it fits his morals and he needs the money. Or uh, it seems like he has a relationship with Amelia already, just based on the way they interact. They've had some kind of dealings in the past. So that might explain kind of why he decides to pursue this. His concern for her is like genuine, right? And he right. keeps following that thread throughout the movie that sort of sets the whole thing in action. And, the and flip in contrast, side of that, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. we get March, who's swindling a poor old woman with dementia out of her money. He is not righteous. He is just following the money, but in a, in a great way that endears you to him. And it's a testament to Ryan Gosling's performance in this is that he has a line where he's just like, okay, I can start right away. And just the little nuance he puts in that expression, you feel his entire conflicted soul sort of rolling over there as he accepts the job that he knows he shouldn't. Just really great. And they do a great thing with his character, which is like he never really gets redeemed, you know? Yeah. 
He starts off as this good-for-nothing private eye. He's, he's a heavy drinker. He's a little bit of a fuck-up as a dad. And by the end of the movie, like he's still all those things. So it doesn't feel the need to sanitize his character in order to make you like him. It just makes you like him by making him so engaging. Yeah, we'll see how it plays out specifically in the action of the movie. But I think at the end, he's redeemed in that he's turned a corner. He's no longer careening towards the dark side. He's sort of seen a ray of hope and there's some hopefulness. But yeah, he's still... Still a shit. Uh, still right. a piece of shit from start to finish. But probably one of my favorite jokes in not just this movie, but maybe any movie, is the little money shirt he makes when he's trying <laughs> to get information out of the bartender in this scene. He just makes a little money shirt and he makes it walk. Like, yeah. Every time I think of it, I laugh. It's really funny. And it's funny because it comes out of nowhere. It's before you really know him. You know him as this kind of a shady dude. But this is where he first starts doing quirky stuff that's really like, what are you doing? Because it's like a tough guy, P.I., trying to bribe a bartender scene. Very classic thing. And to have him put the little shirt on the bar and dance it towards the guy is just and the bartender's so like, out there. What is, what is that? Is that a little shirt? And he's like, yeah. I also loved, it seemed like the, the movie was leaning into the trope of the bartender who remembers everything about a customer from a week ago, even uh-huh. the drink they ordered. That's such like a noir standby to have that character in there to move the story along. And Shane Black's a smart enough guy who's familiar enough with a film noir to know that what he's doing there. I and mean, that's why it didn't bother me. If you see that on like Law and Order, it can feel lazy. But in this movie, it felt like more of an homage than anything. And also the bartender kind of deflates it and goes, if you think I'm going to go pull the receipts and go through all that shit, fuck you. Yeah. And that leads March to have to break into the bar in another hilarious scene that also yes. subverts... Uh, a trope of this type of movie. He wraps his hand up in some kind of cloth and punches through the window, but manages to slice his arm up so bad that he faints. Which... Instantly incapacitates himself with this horrible gash. And the sound design of the blood coming out of his arm is just impeccable. It sounds so disgusting. Pretty gross. But I would contrast this. So this is like a thing that I think Shane Black likes to do this. He likes to use physical violence and bodily injury and do it in a comic way to make it kind of harsh, but also diffuse it with the comic element. And here I thought it totally worked. I I remember the first time I saw this scene, I just totally was dying laughing. And I just went back and rewatched Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And the hero in that, Robert Downey Jr., gets his finger cut off in another scene that's sort of equally horrific, bloody violence. But in that one, it didn't work for me. And that the horror of it outweighed the comedy and the comedy never won me back over. Well, that was Shane Black's directorial debut. Maybe he was still kind of honing his balancing of the horror of it with the comedy of it. Even though I I like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, I like this one more actually. So I like things about it. Maybe he was just in a darker place personally where like he wanted it to be more off-putting overall as a film. And to me, it just was. It doesn't strike that really fun balance that this movie does. I think at that point in his career, too, you couldn't cast Robert Downey Jr. without the character just having an inherent tragedy slash darkness to him that even though Gosling's character is also kind of in the depths in the same way, I think just the fact that it's Gosling, it lets you up for air a little bit as opposed to plunging you into that. Yeah, he's much safer. Like, you don't feel that scared that he's going to really go over to the dark side. So this first Holland and Healy meeting, how did you find it? Did you feel the charisma between them, even though they're in kind of a showdown standoff type deal? It's fun. It has some of that chemistry. It's also, it's the part of the movie that pushes me most out of my comfort zone in terms of the violence because he's smacking him around and that's not too scary. But when he actually goes for the arm break, it uh, it pushed me towards the edge of where I was comfortable. Although then Ryan Gosling brought me back with his hilarious scream crying that he does throughout the movie, sort of took the edge off that moment. He is such a good comedic actor. I always forget how funny he really can be. He's so funny. There's not a lot of guest hosts that are must watches for me on Saturday Night Live at this point, but he's absolutely one. There's never been a bad episode where he's been the host of SNL. He'd done The Big Short right around this time, too, which is another. I I don't know if I would call The Big Short a comedy. It definitely has funny moments, but he's playing almost an overtly comedic role in it. And he just nails it. I mean, he's a great actor overall, but he's so funny in these movies. He's so good in this. I mean, as much as I love Russell Crowe in this, and I think Russell Crowe is super solid and really holds it down, he has the less comic role. And Gosling gets to be the goof in most of the scenes. And he, oh my God, he just nails it. And it's not even the big, there's parts where it's really broad and he's 
flipping over and falling off balconies and he's screaming and he's doing all this really slapstick stuff. But there's parts where it's just these little line deliveries where you just see something in his eyes or you hear a little something in his voice that it just cracks me up. He's just so skillful. Yeah, Crow's definitely playing more of the straight man and he's funny, but he's funny in the sense of he's reacting to Gosling's insanity. Right. And But he does have one of my favorite line deliveries when Holly's like, yeah, he really likes my dad. And Jackson's just like, maybe they should get married. It's just one of those great yeah. Russell Crowe deadpan deliveries. I think he's funnier than we give him credit for, too. Yeah. But it seemed like he was content to be the straight man, which worked yeah. for this. It just was the right thing. Although his anguished cry when he finds out that his ex-wife has been fucking his dad is pretty like broad comedy. Wait, did I miss this part? Refresh me on when this happens. <laughs> it's like a flashback scene where they're sitting next to each other and he makes like a throwaway line and she's just like, I've been fucking your dad. I can't believe you missed this. It's like a really quick scene. But also Holy you might have to shit. edit this out if I got too stoned and imagine this. <laughs> this might have been your equivalent of the Bumblebee scene. Yeah, or it might have been mine. Bumblebee? Maybe I'll- I have several notes about this. Maybe we're watching two different versions of this movie. Because she says she's been fucking Russell Crowe's dad and I had to go look. He was 52 when they released this movie. So (laughs) how old is his father? In his late 70s, probably? Okay, that's a funny moment. Yeah. You know what? When we're done recording this, I'm going to screen record it and send it to you. Okay. Then you'll be the fool gaslighting me because I do drugs. I did not mean (laughs) suggest that you made up a scene in your mind. Although (laughs) if you had, that would have been a really cool bit of writing that your brain did. But probably Shane Black did it. Editor's note. John was right. This scene totally exists, and Ian had totally seen it. Sadly, Ian's mind is like Swiss cheese from inhaling all that smog as a child in L.A. in the 70s. Now back to the show. So did you catch Jack Kilmer is in this movie? Val Kilmer's son is Chet. That gives them a a little bit of information. I only learned that after doing some research. And then I went back and I I didn't have any other experience with Jack Kilmer. But once you see him, you go, oh, yeah, that's Kilmer's kid. Yeah, he's got a Kilmer face to him. I'm not familiar with him as an actor overall, but I thought he did fine in this movie. It's not a huge part, but I think Shane Black and Val Kilmer are our friends personally. And I know Val Kilmer has kind of a tough time acting now. He's had some health issues. So that was like a nice little way to kind of honor his friend by having his son in the movie. And he certainly doesn't take anything away from it. No, he does a fine job with the part he has. He's a kind of a dopey little low status character, but he does a fine job there. And Keith David, just way overqualified to be playing (laughs) kind of like a nothing part, little intimidating hitman. but he has fun with it. And he's, I'll never say no to more Keith David in movies. No, he's awesome. He has just a handful of lines, a bunch of the things are just kind of his presence and then his sort of big battle which comes later in the story is just one of the great action moments of the movie yeah you needed somebody that you could believe can go toe-to-toe with healy yeah and i mean keith david is a natural choice because healy is set up as almost like a terminator in this movie he's pretty unstoppable when he gets he's going pretty badass so that was nice to have kind of a villainous foil for him and to show how he's not really bad because look how much worse these two guys are that kind of have the same job as him right yeah they're definitely worse from the minute minute you meet them especially Blueface, who's just sort of cacklingly evil god i hated that guy it's a perfect <laughs> i mean that feels like a really 70s throwback when they would cast weird character actors to play bad guys that would just be like oh shit that guy must be bad in real life because he's so convincing as a freaky asshole in this movie he brings almost a dennis hopper and blue velvet energy just chewing the scenery all over the place like a yeah. maniac and compared to everyone else's except for gosling's like kind of subdued performances it's a little jarring but i think that's what the part called for and you definitely remember him obviously we're talking yeah. about him now all right did you want me to move on to the next section of the movie sure what happens next all right so healy and march follow a trail of clues about amelia and a movie she was making with her dead filmmaker boyfriend misty mountains and porn impresario sid shattuck played by an uncredited robert downey jr Holly stows away in March's trunk as the guys attend Shattuck's wild adult entertainment industry party looking for Amelia. After March stumbles onto Shattuck's murdered corpse in the bushes, the two thugs from Healy's apartment show up. Healy subdues one, and the other one chases after Amelia but is hit by a car. He dies, but not before warning Healy there's an infamous assassin named John Boy, played by Matt Bomer, coming to kill them all. Oh boy. John Boy. They build that character up really well in that scene, though, to be like a boogeyman. It's great. It's a classic action movie mystery kind of trope to go, oh, the somebody is coming and you'll know him by his whatever. And this is perfect because it's 
funny, right? It's it's the scariest assassin you can think of, but he's known because he looks like John Boy from the Waltons, which right. I don't know if you were around. I was actually around when that was still on the air and John Boy was a well-known kind of reference. I'm not going to lie to you, Ian. I've heard of the Waltons. I've never seen it and I was not about to go track it down for this <laughs> one little throwaway joke they do in the nice guys. So It was big. But, uh, that was like mainstream, top of the heap uh, network TV. I've seen Matt Bomer on the street in New York just casually like walking around and he's a very small little man. At first I was like, I'm not going to buy him as a scary assassin, but then no, he pulled it off. Yeah, but no, also he hasn't, he doesn't appear in the section of the movie. So let's save that for when he actually sure. pops up a nice little kind of throwback to the, the period this movie was filmed in. And just a funny joke is the smog protest, right? I mean, that's near and dear to your heart as a climate change acceptor. So this movie is set in LA in 1977. I was not as old as these college kid types who were protesting, but I was a little kid. And so I lived through those stage one and stage two smog alerts where like you were not supposed to go outside or do any activity. And so, yeah, it totally hits home the way LA looks in this movie and that the protests when these guys are out there, like you're killing the birds hit home. Well, good news though. These protests were a wild success and it caused everyone to reconsider how we use fossil fuels and we were able to reverse the damage we'd done for all these years and everything's going to be fine now. Yeah. Something like that. Is that what happened? It, it actually, I mean, things are not great now, but it actually, as far as like air quality, there was a major change. So I was poisoned as a child. I had to breathe all this stuff. And then there was the gas crisis, which is also referred to in this movie because March has to wait in line at a gas station. But what that led to was a change in what cars were actually put out, which is the, the big thing this movie is about. Japanese cars started to take over fuel efficient cars, became a thing that people wanted to get and, and the air quality standards started to be enforced. And fortunately, the next generation of kids growing up in LA breathed much cleaner air than I did, but not these guys. No, they were still living in this smoggy world, but, and a call back to the smoke in the air. We have this burned house, uh, yeah, Amelia's not helping boyfriend, the not helping the air quality, but then we get bicycle kid who a has a lot of information for a child yeah. <laughs> and B wants to show everyone his fucking dick. So <laughs> this kid is a character, man. This is a really fun scene. The kid is great. The casting is perfect. He is, he's exactly like what this kid should be. And it's like a great, as like a screenwriting device. They know they got to get out all this exposition. They've got to somehow get clues from somebody and to mix it in with this kid on the banana seat bicycle offering to show his dick for 20 bucks. It just really broke up what otherwise might be some dry exposition. Yeah, this kid is doing the bartender who like knows too much about everyone <laughs> trope, but he's a child. And also he wants to show you his penis really badly. <laughs> so it's just like one of those weird little details that just kind of enrich the movie. And it's a great joke that doesn't need to be in there, but I'm glad it is. So then they get to this big party. The party is just chock full of great stuff. There's so it's, many good lines, good scenes in this. Yeah, we can't even try to talk about half the things that we saw in there because it's so packed. I mean, watching March get progressively drunker throughout the party is great because Ryan Gosling, pretty good drunk actor. Like he plays a very self-assured drunk, somebody who's comfortable being drunk. His delivery on the line where you first realize he's totally sloshed and he's been asking people, have you seen Amelia? And then he goes up to another group of ladies and he goes through this <laughs> totally mix up. Hi, my name is Amelia. And if you see you, just let me know and tell me my name. And he's just like, I can't even <laughs> begin to do it justice how good he delivers this grinning <laughs> mixed up thing where he says everything backwards and it's hilarious. I just, I love this whole stretch of the movie. I mean, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just looking for my gun. When he finally stumbles upon Amelia (laughs) and uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s corpse playing Sid Shattuck. Did you catch that? I did not know that till I dug into like the trivia of the movie. No, I didn't either. I was sort of looking away from the, like two thirds of his face is a big bloody pulp. So I kind of looked away from it and didn't pick up on the other third was Robert Downey Jr. peeking out. And for a movie that's mostly a comedy, they really made some realistic prosthetics for his blown up face. Yeah, it's pretty gruesome to look at. It was gruesome, but it, it earned the big. That's where uh, Gosling does the whole Lou Costello reaction where he's just sitting there looking at the face and then he can't make a sound like he's wheezing trying to call for help from Healy. Um, It it did a thing that I really like in movies where the face was in the shot for a lot longer than we realize. And then when we finally realize that it's there, it becomes like so obvious. And when you rewatch it, it's very rewarding. But like a famous shot like that is Hereditary, which that's like a much scarier movie. There's like a famous shot in there where there's something that's in the shot and you don't notice it until they want you to notice it. But this shot kind of reminded me of it when he's there next to the corpse. Oh, that's creepy. I got chills. I was thinking more along the lines of those Abbott and Costello meets the 
mummy kind of things where there's like a monster patiently standing there for two minutes while the comedy guy like goes through the motions of almost noticing him, but not quite. Right. That's probably more in the spirit of what Shane Black was going for. All right. Is there anything else from the section you want to talk about or you want to move on to the third act, not the final act, interestingly? Just to make the note that amongst the scary violence and the deep well of comedy hilarity that's woven throughout this stuff, there's also this real drama that goes on. That's part of what makes this movie so good is that in this scene at the end of this section, Blueface dies. He actually dies at the hands of Healy, but Healy doesn't want Holly to know that because Holly wants to save the guy. This is an evil guy who was moments ago about to murder her. And then he gets hit by a car and she's like, no, we have to save him. And it shows how good she is and it shows the influence that she has on Healy and it sets up the core emotional themes of this movie. And it's just really nice how much that stuff is woven through the whole movie. Yeah. And in in case you think that Holly's quick show of compassion for Blueface changed his ways. No, with one of his dying breaths, he lets Healy know that Holly's going to get killed too when John Boy shows up. So her going over and holding his hand as he's obviously in great pain and on the verge of dying does not change opinion of how things should go down at all. No, that fucker is still gleeful at the idea of John Boy coming and murdering them all. And yeah, the movie doesn't sacrifice stakes for comedy, but still is telling what at its heart is a pretty serious story with real consequences and stakes for the characters involved. And this is a good way to kind of demonstrate in a quick moment that pays off in a bigger way in the final act of the movie. So moving on, after the violence at the party, the guys are approached by one Judith Kuttner, who's played by Kim Basinger, a top prosecutor with the Justice Department. She reveals that she's Amelia's mother and she hires the guys to try to find Amelia. So the guys follow a clue to a hotel where they accidentally rescue Amelia from the assassin John Boy, and they take her back to March's house. There, she explains that she's made an experimental porno movie that will expose the collusion of the very same Detroit automakers that her mom is supposed to be prosecuting. Then Kuttner's assistant Tally, played by Yaya DaCosta, calls, and she asks the guy's help to go on an errand. She says she'll send over the family doctor to help Amelia, but it's a setup. She actually sends John Boy, proving that Amelia's paranoia about her mother was well-founded. Then in a dramatic shootout, the guy's fend off John Boy, but in a stroke of bad luck, he manages to kill Amelia as he escapes. Yeah, very deflating moment. <laughs> yeah, it's harsh. Amelia runs runs to a car and asks for a ride out and John Boy kind of gleefully shoots her in the face. It's him and yeah, she almost escapes. I mean, she's gotten by on nothing but her wits to just jump out windows every time someone starts coming for her and it worked pretty well, but it it stopped working right here. Yeah. Kim Basinger in this movie, I feel like it's nice to have her reunion with Crow. Obviously they co-starred and they were lovers in LA Confidential, but I don't know. She seemed a little checked out in this movie for me. Did you get that vibe at all? She gives a weird performance in this and I'm crediting her with being intentional because over Overall, I liked her. It's a weird part of the movie. It's weird to have to, after all this extreme violence, to sit down in an office and have another character talk you through their relationship and what they think's going on. And so I feel like she's trying to imbue it with something strange and a little different so that it's not just totally earnest and boring. And so I'm giving her points for what she did with the role. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, the character is probably supposed to be a little aloof and she is being devious. Obviously, we don't know that at the time, but I guess I could see that as almost a regular person trying to give a performance and maybe coming across a little wooden because she's not used to that. So I guess if you look at it from that lens, which might be charitable, but I can understand why she's kind of making the choices she's making. Yeah. I mean, she's kind of weird, but this is the part where the movie keeps getting weirder. And so I just kind of went with it. So this point of the movie, there's what I call a quiet midpoint sequence where after they meet with Kuttner, there's this downtime and we sort of reassess where the characters are at, which also is part of the really interesting structure of this movie and the way the drama works. Healy tells March his diner story, which is where, again, he proves that he's genuinely good, where he says, I did this stupid thing. I helped these people. And what I got was a bullet in the arm and a $500 doctor bill. But when I think about it, it was the best day of my life. So this is a really cool moment for Healy to prove to us that he's deep down really good in his core as if, I mean, we kind of knew that, but that's a really neat way. And then in a beautifully written way, March proves that he's deep down a piece of shit because he falls asleep during the story. So <laughs> Falls asleep on a diving board, which just yeah. gave me anxiety looking at it. Like <laughs> yeah. I would wake up and not know where I am and just fall 
fall off into this empty pool and crack my head open. <laughs> An empty pool full of cigarette butts. Yeah, it was nasty. Yeah, but the, the diner story, it kind of gets alluded to in the earlier parts of the movie. We finally get the full story here and it's a nice moment. Yeah, and then Holly has a nice moment with Healy too, where they sort of establish her deal. And we see that she's looking at him to be like a good man in her life, a good father figure because her dad sucks. And she's like, yeah. are you a good guy? There's this repeating thing, like, are you a good person? And she tells her dad, no, you're terrible. And uh, and she gets fed up with it in this section. Understandably so. Holly is probably the most level-headed and rational person that we have on the good guy's side in this movie. <laughs> Thank goodness for her. She makes a lot of shit happen. She actually saves the day twice. She saves Amelia's life, literally by closing the door on Blueface and making gunshot miss her. And and then she saves them a little bit later in the end scene from Tally. And then the scene where they get up to the hotel suite where they're supposed to meet Amelia and they just see blood and dead bodies and people being killed like yeah. currently. And then they just get the right front. back on the elevator. It's so good. Such a, like a deadpan comedy moment that I love. It's just played so perfectly. And the look on both their faces of just fear and bemusement is oh, just Oh, yeah. They play it so perfectly. great because they have to stand there in the elevator. And it's such a good reversal of expectations because they work themselves up into the scene, right? Healy's like, no, we have to do something. We can't leave her up there. We have to face our fears. And you're like, okay, they're going to do it. They're going to really go into this hornet's nest. And then they turn around and just quietly moonwalk out of there. It's really funny. And it also serves to kind of build up John Boy in the viewers' minds as this unstoppable right. force because you just see him taking out all these guys single-handedly. Yeah, you don't even see him, but like everyone is dying. Oh, yeah, you don't see him. You just see his his handiwork. You see a body fly out the window. Yeah, <laughs> it's terrifying. It's, it's, uh, it's really well done. But then when we actually get to meet John Boy, I got a bit of a Crispin Glover vibe from Matt Bomer. Did you see where I'm coming with that? Maybe the big a swoop of parted hair. Kind of the stilted way he talks. He's, he's obviously being extremely creepy in a way that nobody would let you into their house. Even a child would know better. Right. But I don't know. I got not Crispin Glover, like Back to the Future Crispin Glover, but Willard Crispin Glover. I don't know. I got some vibes from him in this performance that. Yeah, I know he's up there on the creep meter. So I, I totally get why you would see that in him. But one of my favorite lines is when Holly's friend Jessica is over at the house and Holly was supposed to be at her house. She's like, yeah, my sister's having a guy over. And then Holland is just like, your sister's such a slut. Why is Ryan Gosling insulting a child like it's, her? Yeah, it's, it's like <laughs> Jessica's super annoying. And it gives you that texture that there's this relationship between March and his daughter's friends. And it, it adds some really fun texture to the movie. Right. Like he clearly knows she's annoying and yeah. is, is kind of leaning into that, which is good comedy. I feel like adults being mean to kids can be very funny when done correctly. That sounds yeah, bad. But that's, not a sound great, bad. that's not a great stance to take. But This whole explanation might make us sound terrible, but it's pretty funny in the movie if you don't take it too seriously. Yeah, and it also just shows like how childish March still is, even though right. he's supposed to be the adult. It kind of drives home that he's not really grown up yet. Absolutely. We have to talk about the killer bee scene. Yes. <laughs> what is your take of this scene? It's First, so... can you explain to the to the listeners who maybe haven't seen the movie what the killer bee scene is? So late at night, the guys have to go on this errand. The tally called them on and they're driving back home and they're having this conversation. And you think it's just another quiet moment conversation between the two guys sort of reconnoitering on what's happened. But then it just gets weirder. Weirder is like, oh, I'm, so, I'm tired. Can You'll have to take the wheel. And, and Healy goes, no, that's it's not necessary. You just uh, let go. The car will drive itself. And he lets go and the car keeps driving itself. He's like, oh, I didn't know they do that. Yeah, he's like, yeah, all the cars do that. It's such a weird moment. And then Hannibal Burris in the form of a giant CGI bee is sitting in the back seat, lighting up a cigarette and talking shit with the boys. This is a little bit of a callback. There was a throwaway line about killer bees in the movie earlier. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's set up, but yeah, it definitely refers to something. I think it shows up in a newspaper article and then the bartender tells him about killer bees. It's, it's one of the things amongst small and gas shortages. The killer bees are like a very 70s thing that's in the zeitgeist in, in March's mind. And it comes up and we find out that the bee is not real and that he's asleep this whole time. But it's so weird in the middle of this movie that's pretty much like gritty private detective story. There's a literal dream sequence and it slides you in there so subtly and it's so funny. And then it ends with this big explosive crash and the reveal that Tally has set them up with some fake money. You know why they're called killer bees, right? Because I'll kill you. 
The Tally character, I think we should talk about her a little bit. I found Gosling's infatuation with her pretty funny as a storytelling bit because he's just so unwilling to see that she's clearly set him up and is a bad person throughout the entire movie, refuses to accept that. I thought that was just really well played and just another joke that like maybe you didn't need, but it's a good funny bit that the movie kind of goes back to again and again. Yeah, it gives him another angle, another reason for him to be stupid and do dumb stuff. And it's great. Like all his other dumb stuff he does. Is there anything else from this section you wanted to go over? We can move on, find out how this thing ends. All right. So the cops question the guys, but there's no way to prove Kuttner was involved in the murder. So they go back to work and piece together the remaining clues and realize that Amelia's friend Chet has a copy of the porno expose movie and plans to project it at the L.A. auto show. Holly and the guys go to the show where in an extended climax, they have to fight off Tally, John Boy, and several of the Detroit automakers thugs. With a lot of effort, March retrieves the film reel and realizes that sometimes in life, you can actually win. Healy subdues John Boy, but stops short of killing him in order to prove to Holly that he's a good person. In the end, the car companies get off on the collusion charges, but Healy and March's bond lives on and they go into the private detective business together as the nice guys. Yeah, it's practically like a TV pilot. Yeah. I mean, most of my notes from this section are just things that made me laugh. There's Even in the midst of this big action showcase that takes up most of this final act, there's still just jokes in every moment. Totally. It's big action and the action really works, right? There's Sometimes you have these drawn out fights and they're struggling over the same thing for a long time and it's like, well, you know, move it along. But all the action is really exciting and keeps moving forward and there's great jokes. Every beat of it, there's great jokes. And maybe that's why why this final section doesn't feel laborious. I always think back to like Avengers Age of Ultron had this final action scene that went on for 40 minutes that just bored the shit out of me. And it's because there were some one-liners thrown in there, but this movie's actually throwing real jokes at you throughout this entire section that are hilarious. Like he hides behind a car, but the car's on a rotating platform. So it ends up just rotating right back into the line of fire. (laughs) And oh, and Holly tries to throw coffee on Tally to get her to (laughs) to distract her. And it's just cold coffee and she's just annoyed at her. That was one of the best jokes in and when Kuttner says that I didn't kill Amelia, Detroit got her killed. And then, of course, March is just there like, yep, yeah, whole city took a vote. Big turnout. There's so many like little throwaway things that a lesser screenwriter and filmmaker would leave out because you don't need. But right. all they do is enrich everything. And talk about not needing. There's another surrealistic moment that's not actually a callback to the bee, but it's a callback to Shane Black's willingness to go surreal is that Healy has told March this story about this friend of his and this guy who was dying and Richard Nixon stopped to help him. And to the guy, he thought he was hallucinating because he was near death. Anyways, this whole long story, which I'm boring you with. And, and March makes clear to Healy that he was also bored with the story. But then <laughs> when he falls into the pool, he falls from the roof of this tall hotel into the pool, just barely survives missing the edge. He is under the water and you're not sure if he's going to make it back up. And Richard Nixon is in the pool for some reason, <laughs> swimming towards him from a distance. And he just sort of looks at him and he's like, oh, I'm getting out of here. Just a great moment that is completely unnecessary, but yeah. <laughs> and totally hilarious and weird. And March gets the idea in the middle of this battle that he's perhaps invincible. He makes a totally wrong conclusion, but like he starts to think <laughs> he's magical. And that's just like self-referential humor because they go through so many ordeals. And actually F9 kind of steals this. Oh, really? It's a running joke throughout F9 is Tyrese's character, Roman, thinks he's invincible and immortal because of all the stuff they've survived without any negative impact. It's, I guess, kind of like a a meta thing where a character can look at the crazy movie they're in and go, how did I live through all this? I must be magic. Yeah, and The Nice Guys doesn't go quite as far as the Fast and the Furious franchise in terms of believability. But still, it was a nice moment for March to kind of acknowledge that they've been through some ordeals and are none the worse for wear. And then he has this conjunction with that as his attitude turns and his form of redemption that he gets in this movie. He has this tattoo on his hand that says, I will never be happy. And in going through this heroic effort to finally nab the reel of film that's going to put away the Detroit colluders, it happens to be quite hot because it fell into a fire. And it burns his hand and it burns the never off his hand, right? Am I reading that right? Is that how you read what we saw right there? Yeah, that's how I read that moment, which was a nice little, like a cutesy moment, but yeah, it works. He, he looks at his hand and it tells him he will be happy. And so he has a newfound positivity after that. Yeah, he seems to turn a corner there, which is good because he doesn't really turn a corner in any other way. He's still <laughs> like a hard drinking guy. He's still probably not the most honest or... right. 
what's the word I'm looking for? Noble, scrupulous, scrupulous, scrupulous yeah. noble. Like um, the movie never has a big moment where March realizes alcohol's holding him back and he quits. And then suddenly he solves the case because he's clear headed now. No, it kind of avoids that trope a little bit. It does one mini nod to that where Keith David confronts him and t- takes him in Holly away with a gun. And he's still acting like he's totally drunk. And Holly looks at him and goes, oh, shit, dad's totally sloshed. He's not going to be able to break us out of the situation. And then they get to the rooftop and he reveals that he was faking it. So that's the one nod that, OK, this time he didn't let her down by drinking too much. Fooled you. Sorry, that's my Spaceballs impression. <laughs> I like to say that whenever there's a moment like that in a movie. <laughs> it was a pretty small moment. Like you're saying, it wasn't like I've kicked the habit and I'm a good guy now. And then at the end of the movie, Jackson Healy is drinking now. So yes. Crow's character, who's turned down alcohol throughout the film, has taken to the bottle. And the movie doesn't treat that as a failure on his part. I think Shane Black's attitude towards alcohol is, yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I found that a little dark. Uh, I felt like that was sort of just a jab <laughs> at he realized that he was putting a happy button ending on this thing and he's like let me fuck it up a little bit and have the guy that he's like such a serious sober dude in this movie and then he's just getting blitz at the bar at the end and march is happy about it oh cool you started drinking again yeah i did like that the movie played it that way though so that it's not trying to shove like a moralistic idea down our throats that alcohol is bad no but if you think of this as sort of a pilot as like a setup for more movies or you could picture it as a tv show like you can see that now okay something good has happened these two guys found that they're a great team, but they're going to have problems. Life is not good for them now. They're going to continue to fuck up and and deal with their own issues. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because this movie was originally envisioned as a pilot. Oh, my. Did you know that when you said it, Ian? Don't lie to me. (laughs) I don't know if I knew it was originally a pilot. I heard it was thought into redoing it as a TV show, but so it started as a pilot too? Well, all right. So it was originally written as a screenplay, but it got no buzz at all. So Black went back, rewrote it as a television pilot. CBS was interested, but their standards and practices department took a look at the pilot and was like, no, no way. We can't make this. And I guess they would have had to cut too much to make it worthwhile. So everyone kind of backed out. Black still had the rights to the screenplay. And then he rewrote it again as a movie with Anthony Bagarossi. So it went, started movie, pilot, movie again. I see. Yeah. But interestingly enough, there was a idea of making a TV show based on this movie called The Nice Girls. Okay. That must have been what I read about. They got a script commitment from Fox and Michael Diliberti, who had written 30 Minutes or Less, which is a dog shit Danny McBride movie. Okay. Wrote it, but I can't find anything on it since 2017. So it seems like that's probably dead in the water. Yeah. I mean, it's a shame to me that there wasn't a sequel. It's begging for a sequel. (laughs) I know. I mean, you just want to go. I want to go back and spend time in their world. Yeah. I mean, Blank's interested in making a sequel. He said in August 2018 that he was definitely wanted to. Crow and Gosling both want to. Crow actually said this is one of only two movies he would like to make a sequel to. And the other one being L.A. Confidential. But maybe this is a sequel to L.A. Confidential. (laughs) Maybe we'll just have to be satisfied with that idea. But Black did acknowledge that the movie probably wasn't a big enough success to garner a sequel. But who knows now? So many streaming services are out there. I find it hard to believe nobody will throw some money at these guys to get like an HBO Max exclusive movie made, right? Everyone needs content. This movie is, it's a cult classic now. It has a big fan base, not people that went to see it in theaters, obviously, but it's got fans and I'm sure if they didn't have to leave their house, more people would check it out if it was on Netflix or HBO Max or any of these new kind of streaming services that need original movies from big names. It seems like it has enough of a core fan base and enough of a hipness factor between Gosling and and Russell Crowe and then whatever the world thinks of Shane Black as an auteur. Like it's hip enough. You could whip up some excitement, I would think, enough to make a successful streaming release. I mean, I'm trying to make your argument here in case anybody's listening to us at the big streamers. Please do. I would really love to see a sequel to this movie. I love it so much. So like we mentioned in my lengthy monologue, it was loosely based on a Brett Halliday novel called Blue Murder. But there's kind of a funny story about that novel and Brett Halliday. Would you like me to tell it? Yeah. What's the deal with Brett Halliday? So Brett Halliday was a pen name for multiple writers, both the writer David Dresser, who died in 1977, and Robert Terrell, who died in 2009. Terrell wrote Blue Murder as Brett Halliday, but Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was also based on a Brett Halliday novel called Bodies Are Where You Find Them. But that one was written by the other guy, David Dresser. So 
Shane Black has mined Brett Halliday novels for two of his movies by the same writer, but different writers. Yeah. It's very confusing. He's like, I love Brett Halliday novels. I don't care who's writing them. I'm going to send him a pitch for a movie based on a Brett Halliday novel. That's just me. Just you. Yeah, I'm, I'm Brett Halliday now. Please make my movie. There was also a third person that was using the name Brett Halliday, but I, this stuff's kind of hard to track down at this point because these are like old pulpy novels from the 50s and 60s. And right. there's just not a lot of internet information about them out there. These writers were the, not on social media back in the 50s. No. So as we mentioned, overwhelmingly positive reviews for this movie. Got a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. That's pretty stellar. But you want to talk about kind of the box office and when it got released and what else was out there at the time that maybe stole some of its shine? Yeah, this is the place we look when we we see a movie and we're like, oh, it starts checking the boxes. It's a good movie. It's funny, great action. And in this case, great movie stars. Like we've talked about some funny movies and we go, oh, but I don't know if the actors that were in it could carry uh, a big movie and to open a, a box office hit. Like what's wrong with Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe? So then you go, okay, well, did it get stomped on somehow at the box office? And I don't know. What did you think? So it opened in fourth place, which I feel like is already a bad sign for a movie with this kind of star power and budget. It opened behind the Angry Birds movie, which is in its first week. I don't think there's a lot of crossover in that audience. Maybe not. Captain America Civil War was in its second week. So that might have had something to do with it. And then Phil Walden of Forbes, who wrote about the movie's underperformance, attributed it to opening alongside Neighbors 2, Sorority Rising, which made $21.8 million in its first week, almost doubled the first week take of The Nice Guys. And he said, as they shared kind of a target audience demographic, they're both ostensibly comedies. I don't recall laughing during Neighbors 2, but you know, (laughs) if you were going to put it in Blockbuster, you'd put it under comedies, I guess. And yeah, that's kind of what he said. It was just a bad strategic opening day for this movie to open alongside Neighbors 2. And maybe he's right. Who can say? So we sometimes bring our little movies to rant and complain about that did better than the movie uh, that we're talking about. Neighbors 2 was on my list. That was like uh, the one that caught my attention. Funny thing about Neighbors 2 is that it's just like the nice guys. It's a buddy comedy with a hunky star, in this case, Zac Efron, and his uh, somewhat less ripped partner. But uh, somehow they made uh, three times the money. Wait, so it ended up making $180 million? Uh, well, I may have, my multiples there may have been comparing a domestic versus a oh, gotcha, gotcha, a total. Okay. But it made like 108 from what I saw. It's still, if the nice guys made $108 million, maybe we'd be watching a nice guys too by now. So that pisses me off. You know what else made a bunch of money that year? Tell me. Inferno. Do you remember Inferno? Mm. The third entry in the Tom Hanks versus the Catholic Church trilogy of The Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons. At least they got rid of Tom Hanks' shitty wig for this movie where he doesn't have the fucking Nicolas Cage bird nest (laughs) hairdo that he had for the first two. But how were they still making these in 2016? Ron Howard and Tom Hanks wasted 10 years of their careers on these. From 2006 to 2016, they made three of these fucking things. I didn't even know about the third one. I don't know who they were selling that to. Well, it was a disappointment. It only made $220 million as opposed oh, to like the $450 million the previous one made. But these movies are like escape rooms. Like they're fun in theory, but unless you're super drunk, they're boring as shit. <laughs> like all you're doing is trying to piece together the clues and you just want to get out of there. You just want to leave the theater, which is the escape room when you're watching one of these dog shit ass movies. So I also noticed... There was a movie, which I didn't see, called Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates that made $77 million. A lot of money. And the funny thing about this one is that it's just like The Nice Guys. It's a buddy comedy with a hunky star, in this case, Zac Efron, and his somewhat less ripped partner. Wait a second. Did you just read your notes for Neighbors 2 again? I just read the same thing. Same note. I saved room on my notes this time by putting (laughs) an arrow back up. Yes. See above. For real, though, I mean, Zac Efron was just sort of humiliating Ryan Gosling with his of buddy movies that were stomping all over him. But I get why this could have some appeal. Like it's an original comedy, unlike Neighbors 2, which is just a cash cow. Yeah. This is an original story. It's got some appealing stars. It also stars Aubrey Plaza and Anna Kendrick. So I can see why people are like, oh, these are fun comedy people that I want to go see in a movie. I just can't see why there wasn't enough of that interest for our movie, for the nice guys. Also, Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates is a, like you said, it's a good movie on paper with the cast and the premise, but it did not deliver, in my opinion. I did see that one. Not in the theaters, but I have watched that movie and I don't like it. You know what else? Blew the nice guys out of the water. Made 10 times what the nice guys made. Sing. Do you know Sing, the movie? So you think I want to sit there and watch Matthew McConaughey play a koala bear with big dreams? 
You really think I want to sit there and watch Reese Witherspoon play a pig who just wants more out of life than what she has while they sing and dance some of the most iconic songs of all time? Well, you're goddamn right I do because this movie fucking rules. Oh, you tricked me. <laughs> it's, it's a great movie. It deserves every penny of the $600 million it made. And I can't wait for Sing 2. But you fooled me. if they just gave the nice guys like $30 million of their cut, maybe we'd be watching the nice guys too by now and Sing 2 because that's still good enough to get a sequel. Our movie had a bumblebee that was tired of flying around because of all the smog. I mean, they, they at Put least- the Hannibal Burris be in Sing <laughs> for crossover appeal, and then everybody wins. Everybody wins. Everybody gets what they want. That's a Hannibal Burris uh, callback to one of his stand-up bits. So, kind of like to take a look at the people involved in the movies that bombed to see where their careers went and if they were impacted negatively, positively, whatever, from this movie. So, as we mentioned, Black's prior film was Iron Man 3, which was a massive hit, made $1.2 billion. He's only written or directed one movie since The Nice Guys, which was The Predator. It made $160 million on an $88 million budget, so that's borderline bomb territory. Didn't double its budget, and I think right. it was pretty aggressively marketed, so it definitely lost money. How much? We can't really say. But it also got bad reviews, 32% on Rotten Tomatoes. That's the highest grossing Predator film I was kind of shocked to find out. Because, you know, it's a long-running franchise, and you think if you're going to get that many sequels made, you would have had some really big hits. But no, $180 million is the $160 million is the most any of the Predator movies have made. But it also it was more than twice the highest budget before that. So okay, yeah, that makes spent sense. a lot more on it and didn't get as much in return. He was announced as a director, writer, writing again with Anthony Bagarossi, who co-wrote this movie with him, on a Dwayne Johnson vehicle, Doc Savage, based on those books by Lester Dent. Uh, those were like, they called him the first superhero. They're from like the 30s, 40s. Oh, uh, okay. So they're doing a John Carter deal. Yeah, kind kind of in the John Carter vein. But as of 2020, they had concerns over who has the rights to the characters. I guess they hit some speed bumps with licensing mm. and things like that. And now they're saying they may reimagine it as a TV show. So The Rock can't sit around waiting for projects for years because he's a busy man. So I think he might have bowed out of that one by now. That's too bad. Yeah, and he's got some other superhero. He's about to come out as Black Adam, right? Yeah, he's going to be Black Adam. So, And that's really the only update we have on Black as far as what his next step is. He hasn't given us uh, too much of an update about where he's going, but he's got friends in Hollywood. He seems to be relatively scandal-free as far as I could tell, so I'm sure he'll have more output down the road. Especially if, I mean, I don't know what role Bagarosi had in making this script so damn good, but like, if I see the two of their names on a script on a movie, I'm just like there automatically now. Yeah, Bagarosi was was writing Jekyll, which was going to be a Jekyll story. I think it was supposed to be part of that monster verse with the new mummy that came oh, out, right. and uh, Chris Evans was attached to it, and I I think Ruben Fleischer was going to direct it, but now that's kind of up in the air. I think COVID might have put a stop to that and no one really knows what's going on with it. So we'll see. Everyone seems to be up in a little bit of purgatory between the two of those guys. A Crow was in a bit of a down period when he made this movie. He had starred in Fathers and Daughters in 2015. That only made $5 million against a $22 million budget and it got bad reviews. Then he did Noah in 2014 with Darren Aronofsky. That did okay. I think it got pretty good reviews. It was a modest hit. Made a little bit of money. Broken City in 2013 with our good Good friend Marky Mark Wahlberg was a bomb. And then he directed The Water Diviner, which was his directorial debut, and it got pretty good reviews, made $38 million against $22 million budget, so might have made a tiny bit of money because I don't think it was heavily marketed, but not great. And then he was one of the stars of Boy Erased, directed by our friend, again, Joel Edgerton. Got good reviews, but never really got a theatrical release, so we can't say how financially successful it was. And most recently started Unhinged, which I talked about a few weeks ago as one That's of my right. uh, show and tell movies, which is just a fucking bug shit crazy movie. <laughs> it was the first wide release movie at the height of the COVID pandemic, so it obviously made no money. And that kind of seems to be where he's at. He said he gained weight for this role because he thought Healy would be a stocky brawler type. It does not appear he ever lost that weight. I think Russell Crowe just likes sandwiches and beer like any of us, and uh, he's entitled to that. So Yeah, and he makes it work in his movies. I really, I like him in this comedy thing, or at least in movies that have a sense of humor. I mean, Gladiator was a lot of fun back in the day, but I somehow I wish he would do less unhinged movies where he went really hard on the angry and crazy and sad and all these things and do more sort of lighthearted stuff. I think he he's playing with his image a little bit when he does a movie like Unhinged because he's gotten this reputation as this rowdy Australian madman who mm -hmm. will fly off the handle any moment. Granted, I don't think there's been a lot of stories about him acting out in that way in years. And then so Gosling, Gosling has just been acting less probably as a choice in the last few years. His prior movie was The Big Short, which was more of an ensemble, not really a Ryan Gosling 
announcing starring vehicle. It had right. a huge cast of big names and it was a hit, but I don't know how much of that you can attribute to him. Right. His 2014 directorial debut, Lost River, which he also acted in, didn't get a true theatrical release and got mixed reviews, but it's starting to get a cult following now. I haven't watched it. It was maybe the last movie Eva Mendes starred in, who's his partner, but I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Then he made The Nice Guys. Then he made La La Land, which was a huge hit and also very briefly the 2016 Oscars Best Picture winner. Quite a moment. Yeah. He had in the sun. Yeah. A few seconds. A few seconds long until <laughs> that was corrected. For the record, I think Moonlight's the better movie anyway. But I, I like Damien Chazelle a lot, so I'm happy that they're working together quite often. He made Blade Runner 2049 in 2017. That was a high-profile bomb, though it was critically acclaimed. So stay tuned for that one. He reunited with La La Land director Damien Chazelle for First Man in 2018, which got great reviews, and I really liked it. But it lost money, maybe due to a manufactured controversy about whether the film shows the American flag being planted on the moon. I don't know if you remember this. It was going around a lot of conservative news sources close to the movie's release. They were claiming that the movie was anti-American and revising history to play down the patriotism. Yeah. It's like, well, if they don't show that flag being planted, then they're not true Americans. And Damien Chazelle's like, hey, I don't know if you know who I am. Yeah, so that was a lot of press around the release of the movie. It didn't amount to anything, but it could have negatively impacted the reception to the movie. Who knows? It maybe took some of the shine off. Though I feel like those kind of movies are hard sells, at least for me. I've been through it with the right stuffs and the Apollo 13s and stuff. They're uh, very stressful movies. Yeah, yeah, anything in space is very stressful. And I, I did not watch it in theaters. I watched it on a plane, which was a terrible decision because every section of the movie is like, all right, we're doing this test run for this mission to space. And then just like a bunch of actors you admire and love explode. And then they're like, oh, we're trying again. 30 <laughs> minutes later in the movie time, let's put these more actors in there. Oh, they blew up again. So, yeah, not a great movie to watch on a plane, but what the fuck do I know? And then Gosling's got, he's got kind of an interesting project on the horizon. He is currently filming The Gray Man, a $200 million Russo Brothers action spy thriller for Netflix, co-starring Chris Evans. Well, that sounds fun. That should be cool. Yeah. And then Angari Rice has been successful as well. She's appeared on TV shows like Black Mirror, and she's part of the MCU. She's been in all three Spider-Man movies, uh, all three of the MCU Spider-Man movies, including the forthcoming No way home as betty brant and where else have we seen her ian oh my gosh siobhan the hard to read but in the end good-hearted daughter of mayor of easttown yeah she was great in mayor of easttown i didn't recognize her the first time i went back and watched this movie for the podcast and then i was like oh of course that's her but this was obviously filmed in 2014 so a lot of time has passed and people age more rapidly when they are child actors yeah so. she, she's not quite the same little kid she used to be but yeah she was super good in that if you listen to what the creators said about that she wasn't intended to be such a red herring for the secretly <laughs> bad person in the show but because of this sort of dark and moody performance she turned in she became the secret pet theory of all this conspiracy theorists about who was really the worst of the bad guys in that show and i, I have to apologize to her i guess but it's a testament to her acting is that she gave a nuanced and interesting performance i know i sent you a lot of unhinged like text messages and dms about <laughs> my theories on who the killer was did i ever buy into the Siobhan? I don't know. I may have been pushing the Siobhan thing on you. Like that might've been. Yeah. I don't think me. I ever was in that camp, but I could certainly see yeah. why people got that impression. They did that thing where the camera lingers on her. And if a camera lingers, like in a show like that, you go, uh Oh, something's wrong here. Right. I mean, some of the lingering shots they did ended up paying off in that same way. So it stands to reason that they, they did a few of those on purpose to kind of throw people off. So we kind of already touched on our theories about why maybe the nice guys didn't make money and it might have just been bad timing or bad luck. I mean, was there anything else you kind of wanted to touch on that you thought might have attributed contributed to that? As a final thought for this movie, I looked through my notes and searched my mind and I did not come up with a really good reason for why this fails. So I'm like, I need to use this time as a plea for people to watch this. This is such a cool movie because it does so many things well. And sometimes we see movies get punished for doing too many things, but this does all the things I think you want a movie to do. It's like a familiar genre, right? It's private eye stuff. It's period stuff. And it's got all these recognizable elements of LA noir mystery stories, but it's elevated to me on another level because the comedy works so well. It actually is really a comedy movie with an action sub thread through it. And it's like a really familiar mismatched buddies learn to get along kind of thing. But with the addition of Holly that turns it into a triangle, it becomes this really emotionally satisfying thing as well. There's real character growth and the movie has just a nice warm heart. So I just feel like it's on this other level that really puts it in a special place. 
Yeah, specifically what you said about Holly there. I'm really anti the precocious kid trope in movies. I, yeah. I don't like that. It's a crutch for so many movies. The Tomorrow War, just to point out a recent one that did it a little too much for my liking. But they never really make Holly this kind of infallible, all good kid. She's just like a character. They treat her as a real character. Right. And that's why it works so well for me, I think. She's smart and maybe wise beyond her years, but not like distractingly so. And she still makes mistakes and, you know, write good characters for children. And I mean, a bad kid actor can sink a movie faster than anything, I think, but they got a really good actress for this role and it paid off in spades. It just makes the movie so much richer and gives it another layer that a regular buddy comedy wouldn't have. I think this is a hard movie to market and maybe that contributed to it a little bit. I watched some of the trailers for it and I think they lean a little too hard on the action and not enough on the comedy. And then maybe people were just confused walking out of it that it wasn't what they signed up for. But I don't even really think that would be an issue because maybe it's not exactly what you thought you were walking into, but you still got a really good fucking movie. I know. Who wouldn't (laughs) laugh at all those great jokes and thrill at all the exciting action? And I can't picture people coming out of the first weekend and telling their friends that sucked don't go see it right i can't put my finger on what went wrong with this movie i don't think anything went wrong with this movie from a filmmaking standpoint it's one of my favorites i just think it's tough out there for non-ip r-rated movies for adults just don't get made as much anymore because they're not a sure thing which is too bad but luckily every few years a studio will take a chance on a movie like this and we'll get a great one and we just have to do our part to make sure they succeed so we get more of them yeah i put a coin in the usb slot in my computer every time i bring it up on hulu just to make sure that hulu knows that they made the right choice and they should look for more content like this i mean we say that and then 2021 we're getting no sudden move and movies like that made which you know are not tied into any existing ip so maybe one good thing about the streaming wars, as they're called, is that there's such a need for content. Maybe we'll get more movies like this and maybe they won't go to the theaters, which is too bad. But as long as they're out there to be enjoyed, then, you know, I consider that a win. It's interesting if you think about the directors of these two movies, which tackled the same subject in different times in very different ways. Like Soderbergh is a natural fit for the streaming world. And Shane Black is at risk of being a dinosaur because he's identified with old fashioned, high budget action blockbuster type Hollywood fare. And so he's got to really figure out what's his place in this world. And I hope that he finds a good place and makes interesting stuff going forward. I think Soderbergh is, he has certainly positioned himself as like a champion of streaming, but I just think it comes from a relative lack of ego on his part. He doesn't need every movie he makes to be this huge event. He's like, I'm going to make a movie every year. I'm going to make it as good as I can. And then I'm going to make the next one. And he doesn't have this kind of like Shane Black is not the most prolific writer director. He's made four movies in his career. Soderbergh's made four movies in the 2020s at this point. (laughs) So their approaches are so different, but they both have value. But yeah, I think Shane Black, I don't know him. He doesn't give a ton of interviews. I I don't know his stance on streaming. I don't think he's come out with a big statement on it, but this type of movie seems perfect to be in Apple TV exclusive or something like that. Just they need content, man. And you got the goods. Put it out. Go sell yourself to one of these dot coms with huge money and and make us some movies, Shane. Please do, because I've never seen a Shane Black movie I didn't like. I didn't see Predators, so I'm never going to watch it unless (laughs) we have to cover it for the podcast. So I can keep that a true statement. Tiptoe around as you need to. Yeah. All right. That was the nice guys. Do you have any closing thoughts, Ian, or are you you good to go? I'm all closed out. If you haven't watched this movie, pull it up and watch it. Come hit us up online and tell us what you thought. Yes, please. Drop us a DM on Twitter. Shoot us an email, blastzonepod at gmail.com. Do what you have to do. Like, subscribe, write a review, give us a rating. That just helps more people find our podcast. And keep tuning in. We'll keep giving you the goods. We'll be back next week with another movie. And uh, see you next week in the Blast Zone. See you next time in the Blast Zone. The Blast Zone. Drop it.